From the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, this is NIH Research Radio. Welcome to Episode 29 of NIH Research Radio, with news about the ongoing medical research at the National Institutes of Health, the nation's medical research agency. I'm your host, Bill Schmalfeld. Coming up on this edition, Wally Akinso has a story about how MRI is being used to diagnose early cancer in the opposite breasts of women diagnosed with breast cancer. I'll sit down with Dr. Griffin Rogers, acting director of the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, to talk about what that institute has in mind for National Minority Health Month. A survey funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse shows that fewer than 10% of drug-abusing offenders are getting the kind of treatment they need. And I'll tell you about my recent visit to an NIH-funded clinical research center at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, where I'm taking part in a clinical trial. But first, Wally tells us about a national study on addiction to prescription painkillers. That's next on NIH Research Radio. Maybe you've heard of Tai Chi, an ancient form of Chinese exercise. The National Institutes of Health is conducting a clinical research study to see if Tai Chi improves physical fitness and well-being for cancer survivors in the Washington, D.C. metro area. If that's you and you're between the ages of 18 and 60 and your last treatment was two or more years ago, call 866-999-1116 or log on to clinicaltrials.gov. The NIH is a nonprofit government agency, part of the Department of Health and Human Services. It's a nationwide study to look for solutions to a nationwide problem, prescription drug abuse. Wally Akinso has the details. In response to the growing national problem of prescription drug abuse, the National Institute on Drug Abuse has launched a national study evaluating a treatment for addiction to painkillers. Dr. Nora Volkoff, NIDA's director, discussed the problem. It's an addiction that has significantly increased over the past five years. It's actually the number one addiction, the number of new people becoming addicted to it. Last year, in fact, it surpassed the number of new initiates to marijuana. It has surpassed the number number of treatment admissions for addiction to that very much covered by heroin. The study will test the effectiveness of buprenorphine in combination with naloxone tablets along with different models of drug counseling in patients addicted to prescription painkillers. Buprenorphine works by acting on the brain's own opiate receptors, targets heroin, morphine, and prescription painkillers, relieving drug cravings without prompting the same intense high or dangerous side effects. Dr. Volkov said when combined with naloxone, buprenorphine's abuse potential is further limited since those who try to inject it to get high experience severe withdrawal symptoms, while no adverse effects occur when it is taken orally as prescripted. She added that researchers must recognize the risk of addiction to pain medications and treatment for those who become addicted to them. This is Wally Akinso at the National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland. Well, this week on NIH Research Radio, we've taken the traveling microphone to the offices of Dr. Griffin Rogers, acting director of the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. Thanks for taking some time to be with us today. Pleasure to be here. So here we are in April, 
April is National Minority Health Month, and I understand NIDDK, along with the National Diabetes Education Program, is getting involved in a bunch of different outreach programs to sort of spread the word to the minority community about diabetes and other related disorders. What sort of things are you guys up to? Certain ethnic groups such as African Americans, Hispanic American Indians, Alaska Natives, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders uh, have an increased risk for developing both pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Current figures suggest that 54 million people over the age of 20 have pre-diabetes, a condition which increases the risk of developing diabetes. That's a lot of people. It is, but not only that, but heart disease and stroke and people who have uh, pre-diabetes, they have blood glucose levels that are higher than normal, but mm-hmm. they're not yet high enough to be considered frank diabetes. And a lot of these folks wouldn't even know they had this condition unless they actually went and got themselves checked. It's estimated that perhaps up to one-third of people uh, are unaware that they have diabetes, and of course the number would be even higher than that for pre-diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the National Diabetes and Education Program promotes the finding of a major NIH study that is the Diabetes Prevention Program, or DPP, uh, which found that modest weight loss and re- uh, reduces the risk of these patients that have prediabetes to go on to develop uh, diabetes. Now, by modest weight loss, we're talking 10%? 5 to 7%. Oh, so that's even average, better than I thought. <laughs> uh, for someone who's 200 pounds, that's between 10 to 14 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these findings are true for all uh, ethnic groups, including the ones that I just mentioned. What are some of the risk factors for diabetes? I don't think we can ever really talk about that enough. Mm -hmm. It's a message that I think we really do need to drill into people. Absolutely. Well, it turns out that the risk factors for diabetes are the same as those for pre-diabetes. Background, African-American, Hispanic or Latino, again, American Indian or Alaska Native, or Asian uh, and Pacific Islanders, you're at increased risk of developing pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. Being overweight or having uh, what's defined as a body mass uh, index or BMI greater than 25. Now, BMI is just a mathematical relationship between your weight and your height. Uh, Asian Americans uh, actually develop a risk at a lower BMI of uh, greater than 23. And if you're a Pacific Islander, it's around uh, greater than 26. People over the age of 45 or people who have a family history of diabetes are at uh, increased risk. And so if you fall in one of these categories, uh, we are strongly urging uh, the listeners, uh, or if if they have friends or relatives that fall into those categories. Everybody probably knows somebody who is in this category. Absolutely. We encourage them to see their health care providers to to be uh, checked out. If you're in a, a Medicare recipient, uh, Medicare now covers uh, tests to check for diabetes up to twice a year. And in fact, if you develop diabetes, Medicare helps to pay for diabetes equipment, supplies, covers diabetes self-management and training, uh, medical uh, nutrition therapy service, and other diabetes-related uh, services. Now, NIDDK is doing more than just talking about this. There is a wealth of resources available to our listeners online and uh, by calling a toll-free number. Uh, what are some of those resources? The National Diabetes Education Program, or NDEP, which is a partnership between the NIH and the CDC, and it also involves over 200 uh, private and public uh, partners, 
offers free diabetes prevention resources that are tailored specifically to uh, ethnic groups uh, through its Small Steps, Big Rewards, Prevent Type 2 Diabetes campaign. One example is the More Than 50 Ways to Prevent uh, Diabetes, uh, coined after a, a old Simon and Garfunkel, 50 Ways. Uh, right, right. <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to mind. Exactly. They're kind of humorous messages there, such as snack on a veggie reggie or cancel away day, for example, uh, to motivate people to take small steps to reduce their risk for diabetes. Uh, for the Hispanic uh, and Latino population, we have a PASO, a PASO tip sheet available in English and in Spanish to help to encourage Hispanics and Latinos to learn to reduce their risk for prediabetes. We have a Power to Prevent Diabetes tip sheet tailored to American Indians and Alaska Natives. Mm -hmm. You know, actually we have um, these materials uh, in many, many uh, different languages from Spanish to Samoan. Uh, over 50 languages that this information is provided. And the information is provided and tailored both at the level of the patients, the general public, as well as providers. And if I can, if I could just give you some contact sure. information. For people interested in obtaining these materials and more tips on how to lose weight and lower your risk for diabetes, you can call a toll-free number, 800-438-5383, or you can visit uh, us online at www.ndep.nih.gov. Excellent. And even though April is National Minority Health Month, we should be thinking about this all 12 months of the year. You just want to highlight it this month, but you're absolutely right. This is something that is a, it's an ongoing uh, effort. Dr. Griffin Rogers, Acting Director of the NIDDK, thanks again for sitting in with us on NIH Research Radio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, Wally tells us how doctors are using a state-of-the-art imaging technique to check for cancer in the opposite breasts of women diagnosed with breast cancer. That's next on NIH Research Radio. Want to know more about the important cancer research going on at the National Cancer Institute? Would you like to hear from the experts and ask questions? Then take part in NCI's toll-free teleconference series. All you need is a phone, there's no registration, and it's free. Coming up Tuesday, April 24th, from 1 till 2 p.m. Eastern, the topic will be Resources for Understanding Cancer Risk with Ms. Felicia Solomon, Public Health Advisor with the Office of Education and Special Initiatives at the NCI, and Dr. Michael Gale, Chief Senior Investigator of the NCI's Biostatistics Branch, Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics. Call toll-free 800-857-6584 and enter the password RISK. For more information about the toll-free telecom conference series call the NCI Office of Liaison Activities at 301-594-3194 or visit online ola.cancer.gov. As is true with all forms of cancer, the earlier breast cancer is discovered, the better the chances for a good outcome. Wally Akinso tells us how MRI is being used to look for cancer where it might not have been noticed before. MRI can be used to detect cancers in the opposite breast of women newly diagnosed with breast cancer, according to a study funded by the National Cancer Institute. MRI scans of women who were diagnosed with cancer in one breast detected over 90% of cancers in the other breast that were missed by mammography and clinical breast exam at initial diagnosis. 
Dr. Constance Lehman, the principal investigator of the study, said given the established success rates of mammography and clinical breast exams for detecting cancer in the opposite breast, adding an MRI scan to the diagnostic evaluation effectively doubled the number of cancers immediately found in these women. We know that women who have a diagnosis of breast cancer in one breast are at risk for developing cancer in the other breast. We then learned that many of these cancers are actually in the breast right at the time of that initial cancer diagnosis. And if we use MRI added to mammography, we can find many more of these cancers than we could before MRI. Researchers hope that with breast MRI's strong ability to predict the absence of a tumor, they could provide women with more reassurance that the breast is disease-free. Dr. Lehman is optimistic that there may be a long-term savings to patients and to the healthcare system due to MRI's ability to detect cancer in both breasts prior to beginning therapy. I think this is important information to women and their doctors. Women, when told that they have a breast cancer diagnosis, have many difficult decisions to face. This study provides information they didn't have before to better guide those decisions. We want our patients to be able to make informed decisions, and it's through these clinical research trials that we can provide the information so that they can make those informed decisions. For more information on this study, log on to www.cancer.gov. This is Wally Akinso at the National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland. Studies show that drug abuse treatment cuts drug abuse in half, drastically decreases criminal activity, and significantly reduces arrests. Yet, a recent survey funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse shows that fewer than 10% of drug-abusing offenders are getting the kind of treatment they need. I think that's exactly where you would want them to be available. That 10% refers to people that are in community corrections, which includes parole, uh, probation, community supervision, and those are the people that are at very high risk uh, when they go back into the community from incarceration of using drugs again. That was Dr. Fletcher Bennett, the NIDA science officer on the National Criminal Justice Treatment Practices Survey, which provides a picture of existing treatment programs across all correctional settings, including jails, prisons, probation and parole offices, and local community correction agencies for juvenile and adult offenders. He said the survey shows that there are far too few programs and services in a correctional setting, and the ones that do exist are only offered to a handful of offenders. Uh, there are probably various reasons. The biggest one may be just simply resources. Often there's an assumption that drug abuse treatment is available in the community when in fact it is not underfunded and, and undersupported. In a published statement, NIDA director Dr. Nora J. Volkoff said that since offenders are four times as likely as the general population to have a substance abuse disorder, treating the offender population could measurably lower the demand for drugs in our society and reduce the crime rate. Dr. Bennett said NIDA is looking for ways to increase drug abuse treatment access for offenders. At this point, we're simply trying to find the best way to integrate drug abuse treatment into correctional settings including uh, community corrections uh, settings as well as, as jails and prisons. And so we're trying to find more effective ways of doing that so that the individual can have better outcomes when they go back into the community. The survey findings were published in a special issue of the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment. When we come back, I'll tell you about my recent visit to an NIH-funded clinical research center in Nashville as I continue to be screened for participation in a clinical trial for a new use of deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease. That's next on NIH Research Radio. (laughs) 